Blog Talk Radio. If it's smooth jazz, then the Jazz Queen is talking about it on Talking Smooth Jazz. Your place for all things smooth. Artist Nicholas Cole. Vincent Ngala. Jonathan Fritzen. And news with the smoothest show on the internet radio. Your host, the Jazz Queen. And Mike Reynolds. Welcome to Talking Smooth Jazz. My name is Terry, a.k.a. the Jazz Queen. Thank you so much for tuning in to this very special show. If you would like to join us in the chat room, please go to TalkingSmoothJazz.com and click on Art Porter's picture, and that will bring you into the chat room. The phone number is 646-716-5485, 646 646- 716-5485. Today, we are remembering saxophonist Art Porter Jr. on the 17th anniversary of his passing. On November 23, 1996, Art drowned in Thailand, where he was performing at the Thailand International Jazz Festival. My guests are Christopher Kubin, a friend and producer to Art, and saxophonist Dee Lucas, who will be joining us later. Christopher, welcome to Talking Smooth Jazz. Thank you for inviting me, Terry. It's uh, it's a real honor to be here and and to join your listeners and yourself and Mike uh, as as we recall Art, you know, the legendary yes, art reporter. Definitely. And uh, Mike, how are you doing? Doing okay, Terry. I'm I'm doing okay today. How's everything out there in Vegas? It's cold and raining. <laughs> wow. Cold and raining. Yes. <laughs> Let me welcome those in the chat room. We have a couple of guests, Joe from Germany. I'm glad you made it on time as well, Joe. Welcome. So I'm going to start off with um, a little background on Art Porter and some of his achievements. First, the achievements. He was inducted into the Arkansas Jazz Hall of Fame and the Arkansas Entertainers Hall of Fame. He was the recipient of the Arkansas Jazz Hall of Fame Lifetime Achievement Award in 1998, and he was awarded the title of Most Talented Young Jazz Artist in America by the Music Educators of America at age 16. This honor included the chance to perform as a soloist with the U.S. Marine Band and with trumpet player Dizzy Gillespie in Dallas, Texas. Um, his background at nine years, he uh, Porter joined his father's band, who was also a saxophonist as a drummer, and played with them until his teenage years. He started playing the alto saxophone at age 15, performing with his father's band in nightclubs in Little Rock, Arkansas. At age 16, he was arrested and charged with working underage in a nightclub serving alcoholic beverages and there's more to that story that I'm going to share a little bit later. Um, He attended Berkeley College of Music, Northeastern Illinois University with a BS in Arts, uh, Roosevelt University with a Master's and Virginia Commonwealth University where he studied piano under Ellis Marsalis, a former saxophonist himself. Critic Zan Stewart, writing for the Times in 1993, praised Porter as among the most popular artists now in jazz. So that's just a little bit of history on saxophonist Art Porter Jr. So now Christopher, or CC as he would like for us to call him, yes, is thanks. a friend and producer to Art. So CC, um, give us some uh, a little bit of your background. Okay. Well, um, 
I'm from Chicago, and as you mentioned, Art spent time in Chicago and in the Chicago area for school, and he lived there for quite a while. And um, <clears throat> and so we have a mutual friend. His name is Tim Gant. And uh, to be fair, you know, without Tim, I never would have met Art. And go, uh, we're in various bands and incarnations together, <clears throat> and. Uh, we uh, we enjoyed each other musically, but we never actually worked on a single project uh, together that was recorded. <clears throat> and okay. so, um, you know, my my background as a musician, as a programmer, as an engineer, um, and uh, and as a promoter, you know, is eventually what uh, allowed me to um, to move to the Nashville area. This is probably around I don't know um, late '80s, early '90s. And um, a little town called Murfreesboro, which uh, for people from the, the you know, Middle Tennessee area, they, they know Murfreesboro, a uh, small town just southeast of Nashville. Well, the great comedy is after, um, and is, let's say go, we're going back to maybe 1994, uh, 93, 94. Uh, I had just finished up doing um, the Charday Love Deluxe Tour, right, and was very eager to come home to my studio and get back into some recording. And so my buddy Tim, who I mentioned from Chicago, Tim Gant, uh, Tim called me up and he said, you're not going to believe who lives in Murfreesboro, right? And, uh, and he said, Art Porter. And I thought, no, no way. Why would Art Porter <laughs> be mm. here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee? And so he's like, you know, I, I, it can only be one Murfreesboro. And I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sure if it's, <laughs> if it's Murfreesboro. So sure enough, so he said, I want to give him your number, you know, and you guys, you guys should get together. You got to get together. And so um, <clears throat> next thing you know, literally minutes later, because Art, you know, people who know Art know Art is a lot of energy, you know. And so uh, just minutes later, I get this call, uh, and Art had kind of, a, kind of a high-pitched voice. He always sounded excited whenever he called. And um, he said, hey, man, you know, I just talked to Tim, and he said, you're right around the corner. You know, we've got to meet. We've got to get together. And so uh, next thing you know, I mean, it seemed like less than three minutes later, I hear my doorbell ringing, and, uh, and there's Art <laughs> on his mm. bicycle <laughs> at my front door. <laughs> and I'm like, what, what are you doing here? And he's like, hey, man, you know, when Tim mentioned you were – you're in Murfreesboro and, and told me your address. I realized you're right around the corner. And I said, I got to go see this guy. So, so anyway, uh, so Art came through. And as it happened at that time, I, I had a young R&B singer uh, from Chicago uh, that I was working with. And I was doing a remake of an old Teddy Pendergrass song, um, mm -hmm. uh, Close the Door, actually, was the, was the title. And, uh, and, you know, in that song, there's a great... Uh, sax solo, and forgive me, I, I don't even know who did that original. Maybe, maybe one of your listeners can uh, can send us a quick note and uh, and let me know who was the um, the original sax player on Teddy Prendergrass's um, "Close the Door." But anyway, uh, so I wanted to duplicate the sax experience there, and uh, and I said, "Hey, Art, would you know, would you be down? Would you consider maybe you know just blessing the mic with a little bit of uh, of your flavor?" And he was like, sure, you know, and I had to pay him. <laughs> okay. Because Art was, was a professional now, you know, Art mm -hmm. was a professional. And so um, it, was, it was magnificent. It was uh, one of the finest uh, 16 bars uh, you could ever could imagine. And, and one of these days I'll be kind enough to just kind of leak that out so that people can enjoy it. But um, <clears throat> anyway, from that, 
uh, Art was real quick to say, hey, you know, uh, let me hear other stuff you're doing. And um, <clears throat> one of the projects, of course, that I was working on at that time was my artist, Me Fi Me, uh, on RCA Records. And, um, and so I played him this song, and the song was called Lay Your Hands on Me, right? And, um, and I wanted a sax on that, too, <laughs> as it was. And so for people who are familiar with the, um, you know, the title cut uh, from his last studio record, they know that the intro is this kind of just solo sax. And, and what I told him at the time is I said, I want it to sound like uh, you're just in, like, the subway in Chicago, and there you are sitting on the concrete with your with your case open and uh and you're you're playing to the train you're playing to the walls uh and as you know in the subway you know the concrete walls give this great kind of um reverb you know mm-hmm. real reverb if you will and so i said just play like it's just you and nobody else uh, all by yourself um there in the subway and so that's what you're hearing at the beginning of the title cut lay your hands on me uh, but again, remember, this was for my, my rap artist, MiFi Me, right? Now, for anybody who knows MiFi, um, on his first record, he had a song called Black Sunshine, which was, um, was really dedicated to the plight of the homeless, okay? And so the whole lay your hands on me uh, concept was a, a loose extension of that kind of Black Sunshine conversation about the plight of the homeless and, and the needy, so to speak. And okay. so uh, what, what I would later come to appreciate is that Art's spirituality uh, was so strong. And I didn't know this at the time, but it, it was so strong that this kind of bizarre introduction, you know, the fact that he and I are both in this, this weird little town called Murfreesboro, um, you know, that we both had roots in Chicago, that we both knew, uh, you know, our brother Tim Gant there, um, <clears throat> I think really kind of pushed him, you know, spiritually and made him feel like there was some sort of divine sort of purpose behind this entire confluence of elements that brought us together. And so uh, I just I just wanted a sax player on the song. And, you know, and what better sax player than Art Porter? I mean, you know, how blessed am I that, you know, that here he is around the corner and he's down to top on the song. And so uh, I thought I hit the lottery just right there by itself. But for Art, he had other plans. And so after we did the song, right, uh, he said, hey, man, you know, I really enjoy playing on it. Uh, is it cool if I just took, like, the instrumental back home? I just want to jam on it, you know, you know, when we're not here in the studio. And I was like, okay, I thought of it quite innocently, in fact. Little did I realize <laughs> um, Art was going to take that song and send it to New York to his label, Verve Forecast at the time. Uh, and, uh, and the next thing I know, Art came to me, and he didn't really ask. He told me, he said, hey, man, you're probably going to be mad at me for doing this, but uh, I played the song in New York uh, for my people over at Verb. They love it. You know, I love it. And we've decided that it's going to be the title cut on my next record. <laughs> no, no, no conversation with me, and so and so here I am, kind of you know, uh, reeling from the shock of it all, and, and uh, honored, of course, you know, but not sure if I'm supposed to be mad at him or or how, how do you react with something like this? I mean, this is my other artist's song. You just can't go, you know, taking his song and deciding you're gonna do it without <laughs> even, uh, the, the, you know. So anyway, um, what I realized is that um, he 
he needed this song, you know, that there was something very, very um, profoundly special to him about this song. And um, I mean, who am I to stand in the way of that? And I mean, it was just one of many songs that Mephi had that we were considering. It wasn't necessarily, um, oh, we have to keep that song. But Mephi himself was on a spiritual kind of quest, if you will. And this song was one of several songs that were part of that that whole energy. So anyway, um, we pulled Mr. Mephi off as a rapper, um, but we kept the uh, the background vocals. Many people don't know, but that's actually me singing. Uh, the background vocals and, and playing, uh, I think for the most part, all the other instruments on that, on that cut. And so uh, I was just thrilled that uh, that he wanted it, that he was so enthusiastic about it, and he reassured me that the label was equally as excited. Um, <clears throat> but you know, one thing I'd like to add uh, is that um, when Art first came over and he asked me if I was familiar with this material, I told him, "Well, of course," you know. And um, and he asked that this one question that sometimes is not the question you want to ask. And he asked me, uh, how do I feel about his stuff? And uh, as a producer, <laughs> um, I have to be honest. I have to be forthright, you know, uh, because I, I, I think artist to artist, there's just no reason for the kind of hype and, uh, and pretense. And, um, you know, I, I famously told him that um, as much as I like him, I thought a lot of it sounded like, uh, cats dancing on a tin roof, mm. and um, he he was not he was not thrilled with that reaction. <laughs> I can um, imagine. And so he he well he respected it and he mm-hmm. laughed. Uh, and uh, and we that turned into a, an extended uh, conversation about the state of uh, of smooth jazz at that time. Uh, and what for me um, and and I regret that I, I felt that way, but I just want to be honest with you and w- with your listeners. That uh, that for me, even at that time, I felt like um, certain elements within smooth jazz had fallen into a formulaic kind of predictable sort of thing, and um, I wasn't a fan, quite frankly. I just wasn't, mm-hmm. and so I felt that the talent of someone like Art, and I think this could broadly apply for a great many uh, musicians that we know of, um, was in some way, and this is a terrible word, but I'm going to use it anyway, uh, was in some way stunted. You know, mm. by what mm-hmm. seemed like these kind of limited. Now, remember, my background as a musician and as a writer was back from the jazz fusion day. Okay, and so I'm I'm really still stuck in a legacy of, um, you know, weather report. You, you know, the Mahavish New Orchestra. The, you know, this real kind of intense, you know, rock fusion, jazz fusion kind of stuff. And so smooth jazz was um to me and a lot of folks who uh, who felt like me uh a um <clears throat> I'm going to politely call it a distillation you know of of that kind of real musician sort of thing uh and art helped me to appreciate that um that there was a there was a great audience out there uh who loved jazz but you know they're not listening to bird okay with regularity right and there's nothing wrong with that i mean they'll have a taste of that when they need it but on an everyday basis, when you're just at work, when you're, you're doing dishes or you're hanging out with your significant other, um, you know, there's an a important place that smooth jazz uh, uh, kind of satisfied that nothing else did, okay? And so even as I go back to some of my favorite uh, works from people like, um, 
Jeff Lorber. I guess I, I should mention Jeff. And, mm-hmm. uh, and um, you know, Grover Washington, who, you know, and, and, and Wes Montgomery, the two of which, uh, for me, uh, were the, um, you know, the, uh, the godfathers of, of contemporary smooth jazz without knowing it. <laughs> um, I, I, then I get it, and I got it, okay? And so we had a, a producer-artist conversation about why this song. Because honestly, I wouldn't have chosen this song for him. Uh, I would have gone with something that was probably a little bit more in line with what smooth jazz was at the time. Uh, but he wanted this song. And, and so I needed to understand, you know, what are we doing here? Because, you know, people are going to look at me and go, okay, Cece, why did you do that song for art? As if I had a choice. You know the, you know the truth now. Um, no, he wanted that song because I think he felt that he wanted to begin to stretch you know, uh, his, um, his definitions. I think he realized that by that point, um, people knew who he was as an artist. Uh, and he didn't have to prove anything anymore, you know, they, and particularly those who had seen him live. Um, you know, Art wasn't just a great musician. He was a great performer. And for those who have seen him live, they know, you know, when he got on stage, uh, oh, yes, you're impressed with, you know, with his virtuosity, no doubt. But you're also impressed with his very, pre- I mean, he was a handsome guy. Uh, you know, he moved and the whole band, you know, was just kind of, you know, uh, set up a fire with his energy. And that continued for the whole set. You know, there were no, there were no lulls. I mean, he, he might be chilling, but it still had an intensity emotionally and passionately that, uh, that really was, was quite incomparable. And I, I think I'll go so far to say that I don't know of another jazz performer and smooth jazz or otherwise who was as dynamic who was as engaging who was as impressive as art porter uh live now, now did art always want to play jazz or did he play because i think i read somewhere that he was um you know also interested in pop and doing some r&b as well and so um when pocket city came out was he playing um other genres before then, and then when he signed to a label, did the label just kind of put him into that genre, jazz? Well, I, I don't want to speak for the label, but uh, what I will say is that uh, uh, both for art and for many musicians, you know, m- many of the musicians I know, including myself, have a wide diversity of things that we enjoy and things that we can do, okay? And so sometimes what happens is you become rather narrowly defined for yeah. one thing that you're good at, and, and that's great. You're grateful for that. You know, there's, there's no disrespect to someone appreciating this particular style. Uh, but uh, it doesn't mean that's all you're capable of. And so right. uh, what I will say is that Art and I did have many conversations about uh, his writing outside of his project, the Art Porter brand, if you will, um, that, um, that he wanted to do, particularly in the field of, of pop and R&B. Uh, he really was very gifted with that, and uh, melodies came to him uh, effortlessly. I mean, it was like water. It was like breathing, really. And so, um, you know, it was, it was a matter of time before, and I think with the last record, and, you know, certainly with the previous ones, too, but with the last one, you saw uh, him moving closer to that, you know, because Brian McKnight, for example, uh, uh, is on the record, you know, Chucky Booker, Layla Hathaway. And so you see more of this kind of transition from being simply a, a jazz soloist, an instrumentalist, into this kind of – and I think that broadly applied for a lot of what was going on with smooth jazz across the board. Okay. Uh, I know 
he was very intrigued with, you know, my experience with Chardet, uh, who, um, you know, who, who was, of course, uh, both, I guess you would say, a smooth jazz uh, artist as well as, a, um, as an R&B artist and a pop artist, too. And so um, Art had the looks that, um, that, along with the right videos and things of that sort, he very easily could have taken smooth jazz into a much stronger crossover even um, than, um, than it did. And so um, it's one of the other uh, tragedies with his loss is, that, uh, is what might have happened to smooth jazz as a mm-hmm. genre and its evolutions had he lived. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and I, I totally agree with you because I think that that's the, one of the things that one of the biggest what ifs in, you know, you know how some things happen. You say, well, what if this would have happened? And I think mm-hmm. that you're cor- uh, correct. Uh, and even, even with Grover Washington, same thing. Those two guys yes. meant a lot to this genre. And yeah. when, with their passings, I think that the genre then took a turn because it was like, where do we look to now? Who, who do we look to? You know, so I, I totally agree with you on that. If he was uh, was wouldn't happen, if that wouldn't happen, the the genre would have took a different turn. And, and he was such a superstar, you just don't know how how the 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 whole dynamic of the genre would have kind of took off behind him and mm-hmm. a guy like Grover. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. I, 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 I do agree with you about that. No, no doubt it would have been powerful. And, and that's not to take anything away from any of the performers that are still around or that were hot at that time, too. They, they were, many of them were great, you know. I mean, we could make a long list of fantastic folks uh, who were great uh, musicians as well as great personalities. Uh, but there was something special about art, and I, yeah. I don't think you'll find too many people uh, who will disagree with that. Um, th- there is a dark side to this kind of story that, that I probably should bring up. Um, people who are in the business, uh, they, they know exactly where I'm going and what I'm talking about with this. Um, they're in the mid-'90s, <clears throat> um, and music was very exciting for me, throughout all of the 90s, okay? And whether we're talking about country, you know, Garth Brooks, rock and roll, you know, with, you know, Nirvana, uh, or smooth jazz, what you saw there is a, um, an across-the-board kind of enthusiasm for music, okay? We won't even talk about hip-hop, right? You know, with Pac and Biggie and all that kind of stuff. You know, music across the board was, was just something that was really important. To, to, to the public, okay? You had people selling millions of records. You had people having great and successful tours. And, of course, MTV at that time actually still played music videos. And so there was a lot going on. You didn't have the Internet as much. You know, it was just coming on. Most of us were just still collecting our CDs from AOL. But, um, <clears throat> but what was, the music was important. What happened is, um, is a very disturbing shift uh, a, a cataclysmic shift, even uh, in the power amongst um, the record labels, specifically amongst black music. Okay, and and we're going to broadly lump smooth jazz under the black music banner, if you will. Okay, um, what happened is uh, there was a lot of consolidation, and a lot of the executives, you know, who you know, not coincidentally tended to be black, ended up being kind of um, downsized out, right, okay, there in the mid-90s. And so a lot of very influential black executives, and, and I could name names, but uh, do your research and, and you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about ended up happening. Um, the, the net effect of that, it, it, for me, 
um, just both as an insider and objectively watching it as more of a music historian, was that um, the, the real foundational substrate of what was pushing that music uh, ended up being eroded, okay? And one of the executives, for example, who actually is not black, but is a great champion of, of black music, if you will, was Clive Davis himself, you know? And so he at one point was, was literally, I guess you have to say, fired or demoted from Arista, the label that he, that he, he, he effectively masterminded, right? Just to, just to show you how extreme uh, the circumstances were. And so um, I guess what I'm leading to say is that I, I think that art, um, you know, in, in, in a certain either conscious or unconscious vision, uh, recognized that, um, that there was a time of change going on here and that he needed to, he needed to exert a little bit of his uh, kind of currency that he had earned based upon his success to provoke that change. And, um, and again, Creatively, I might not have chosen that particular song for me myself. Uh, I, I do think that he saw something um, uh, advanced in, in moving it in that direction. And so, uh, and this is literally what he said to me: is that this is just the first step, okay? And so, uh, I'm telling you, his mind was was active. He had plans, right? He had he had a whole vision of things. That um, that uh, that I wasn't completely privy to, but uh, but I, I, Mike, I, I just know that um, that had things been a little different, um, this may be a different era that we'd be listening to music in right now. Very very right, different. Right. So I um, unfortunately, and and neither has Mike, unfortunately, did not get a chance to see Art perform live. I moved to Atlanta mm. in January of '96. And he passed in November of 96, and he did not come right. to Atlanta in that time, you know, in that yeah. nine-month time period. And when I yeah. moved to Atlanta, I was just now getting into the jazz, smooth jazz genre. So I was learning about the jazz artists um, during that time. So I didn't know a whole lot about jazz artists and the genre, but I did buy a couple of arts CDs and I, you know, was able to listen to his music and that's how I was introduced to him. And then one day I'm sitting at work and I get the news comes on the radio that he had passed away just the same way the news comes on the radio about George Howard. I never got a chance to see him perform either um, because again, he did not come to Atlanta in that nine month period. So I never got a chance to see either one of them mm. perform. Um, you know, let, me, let me just piggyback on that a second, Terry. It, it underscores why it is so important, you know, when you have a favorite artist, yeah, go yeah, see Yeah, I them. agree. I go agree see 100%. And so the, the last jazz concert that I went to, um, shame, shame on me, um, was I had to pick up one of my clients at the Detroit airport. And, uh, again, my buddy Tim Gant, uh, is the keyboard player for, for Ramsey Lewis, right? And Tim said, hey, I'm, I'm in Detroit playing, I forget the venue, uh, with Ramsey and Dee Dee Bridgewater. And I said, yeah, I got to pick up a kid at the airport. Why don't I just swing through? And um, I am so happy because uh, Ramsey, Ramsey's amazing, okay? He looks great, but he's no spring chicken, okay? And so uh, I am so grateful that I got a chance to see Ramsey and Dee Dee. Oh, my goodness. She is amazing. If you guys haven't seen her lately, you've got to see. Got to see you. Anyway, uh, talk about presence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but, uh, but 
that's the key. Go see see them live. Every every chance you can get. Okay. So now, um, on the Lay Your Hands on Me CD, was that the only song that you worked on on that particular album? Did you work on any other music? Because my favorite song on that is Wishful Thinking, and I'm going to play that next. Yes, no, I love that song, but I uh, wish I could claim some sort of credit on, on working on that one. But no, no, Lay Your Hands on Me was the only one. And, okay. um, you know, uh, it became the title cut, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, that was the one that uh, that he and I worked on together in Murfreesboro. Okay, well, um, Wishful Thinking on the Lay Your Hands on Me CD is my absolute favorite on that CD, and I'm going to play that right now. Um, so take a listen.
I love that song. That is Wishful Thinking from Art Porter's Lay Your Hands on Me CD. I, um, Christopher, Cece, sorry. Um, I host another show um, called The Jazz Queen Show. It's a two-hour music show, and that is my theme music. Love that song. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, love that song. in a good mood every time you hear it. Yeah. Yes, definitely. All right, let me welcome to the show saxophonist D. Lucas. D. Welcome. Uh, thanks for having me. Meet Chris. Uh, I'm sorry, I keep saying Christopher. Meet Cece. He is a friend and, and a producer <laughs> to Art Porter. <laughs> hey, D. How you doing, man? Chilling. So. D is on because he and another saxophonist, Tony Exum Jr., do a tribute show. They have a tribute show that they do um, to Art Porter and George Howard. So um, I wanted D to come on and just talk about um, the influences these two saxophonists have had on his life. Go ahead, D. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and thanks for having me once again. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to echo uh, that Tony and I, we decided to do uh, – this tour called Just for Art and George uh, because they were very influential in uh, our careers and where we're heading as uh, musicians. Uh, we think that uh, art was very, very influential in the uh, contemporary jazz market. Uh, he was very talented, and he was one of those guys that just left too soon. Uh, yes. We basically want to pay homage to uh, to this guy along with George because it seems like they didn't get the uh, the recognition of their contribution. So it was our uh, way of saying, hey, we appreciate what you're doing, and we want to, uh, you know, allow the music to continue to live on, even though they're not here physically, but they're here musically. Um, but art was definitely uh, influ- influential with me because uh, it was right about the time when I uh, encountered him, uh, I think the early 90s, mid-90s, and that was when I was actually uh, becoming introduced to the uh, the saxophone at the time. And uh, I just was admired by his uniqueness, uh, his stage presence, uh, his energy, mm-hmm. uh, and the, you know, and, and also the, the way that the versatility on how he can not only just perform at a contemporary jazz standpoint, but he had chops. He had some true jazz chops. He could play. Yes, uh, yeah. So that's what I was uh, really attracted to him. Now, how, how was the audience receiving you and Tony uh, on this tribute? Well, you know what? Actually, we are very surprised because we did not know that uh, a lot of the uh, audience, uh, I would say, were more astute to, to his music. Mm-hmm. Uh, we knew that a lot of people uh, knew George because George had, you know, his he had a, a career that went back into the eighties, uh, but art didn't really come onto onto the scene until the uh, mid nineties, uh, commercial scene, I should say. He's been probably playing, you know, locally or what have you. But from a commercial standpoint, he really came out of nowhere. Uh, of course, he got his break up with uh, Jeff Lorber, but each time we performed this show, uh, we could see the appreciation. Uh, in the in the audience, uh, they appreciate what we're doing. Uh, we have uh, enjoyed each show increasingly each time we come out and perform that show, and uh, it's just a testament that we should continue to do it. Uh, and we get a kick out of it because the songs that we select are very difficult songs to choose because they had a wider wider array of music, and it's hard to just pick so many songs within a 90 minute show. 
but to answer your question, the crowd has been very great. We we love it. Oh, good. Now, do you and Tony have um some you know any future dates coming up where you're going to be playing together again? Actually, we are. Uh, we just wrapped up the, the one in October at uh, Spagatini's at the Seal Beach. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll be back in Hollywood in March. We're going to do more of a. This is a smaller show. As it's called the Lemonade Weekend uh, out oh, of yes. Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, we're going to do. Uh, uh, I think every artist has like 15 minutes uh, to, you know, to do a, a splice of uh, music. And uh, we're going to do a part of the uh, Just for Art in Georgia uh, tribute during that 15-minute uh, time splice. Okay. So that's the next time that we're going to uh, feature that event. And we're looking for some uh, some bookings for 2014 as well. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I I um, hopefully can get out to see you and Tony perform this tribute show. And um, I'm glad that you guys are doing it, you know, because – it's like Mike said and, and, and Cece said, what would the you know industry be like now had they still be alive and playing um, music? And so we're glad that you guys are keeping their music alive. So thank you for that, D. You're welcome. You're welcome. Now, is that my dude, D. Lucas, on the line, sir? Yes, sir. Is that D. Lucas? What's going on, D.? It is Mike Reynolds. Yes, it is, brother. What's going on with you, man? I'm doing fine. What's happening, man? Not so much, brother, not much. But but Terry is right. And, and, and Terry, um, you know, I've seen him and Tony do this uh, tribute show. It's a very good tribute show. They It's very nicely put together. The song selection that they do is, is you know, uh, some of the great hits that they do, that they've performed over the years and everything. And uh, I think Dean and Tony does, does a great job of, uh, you know, uh, paying homage to two great saxophonists. So definitely a must-see show if you guys are uh, in uh, whatever area that they come to. You guys have to check it out. Definitely a good show. Mm, all right. Well, again, thank you, D, so much for calling in. I appreciate it. You're welcome to stay on if you want. Um, but if you can't, thank you again. I appreciate you calling in and sharing your story. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Okay. So earlier I mentioned that Art um, was arrested at age 16 for performing in clubs um, that sold alcohol. And I want to read the full story uh, behind that um, because out of that came the bill known as the Art Porter Bill. So it reads, at 16, clubs that once welcomed him um, began to block his appearances because he was underage. Porter was arrested and charged with working underage in a nightclub serving alcoholic beverages. Then Arkansas Attorney General and future President of the United States Bill Clinton, also a saxophonist, intervened to get the charges dropped and pushed for a law to be changed that would allow underage musicians to appear in adult facilities as long as their legal guardians accompanied them. This law became known as the Art Porter Bill. I love that. I love that. And I love the fact that Bill Clinton got involved with that and changed the law because I'm thinking that must have happened to him at some point in his um, career as a saxophonist, as a young saxophonist trying to play probably in a club or something. And um, and he just saw the potential, you know, and he wanted that those young artists to be able to play um, and not be hindered by certain things or law or whatever. So I'm, I wish I could talk to him about that, but I'm, I'm very happy that that um, happened, that he got involved, and that allowed um, Art Porter to continue to play with his family because they were playing in clubs, and that, that's where he was playing with his family. So I'm glad that he was able to continue to do that. That's so cool. 
So now, Chris, Cece, you mentioned Jeff Lober. Um, he was a uh, part of uh, arts music, and they yeah, did yeah. a. Oh, your mic is. Um, you're sounding kind of gurbly. Okay, I'll call. I'll call back in. Okay, so um, a tribute CD was released after Art's death. It's called For Art's Sake, and there is a song on that called Mr. Porter, Tribute to Art Porter, featuring Art, uh, Jeff Lober and Gerald Albright. So I'm going to play that now.
All right, that was Mr. Porter, a tribute to Art Porter, and that is on the album For Art's Sake. Um, you can find that on Amazon. I also want to mention, um, kind of go back to Bill Clinton for a minute, um, Art and his father, Art Porter Sr., also played in 1993 at Clinton's inaugural prayer breakfast. And I read that Clinton has said that one of his favorite moments is of them playing at the governor's mansion. Um, so that was really nice of him to say that. Um, now, Cece, I read that you initially were supposed to um, go with Art to Thailand. Actually, that's true. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> and um you know i i, I would have gone except for i don't think the label uh had the budget to cover me oh, at the time. okay and so between that and, and needing to finish up other records uh, i did take a pass and so when i first heard about it um of course i was um, initially i mean why would i believe something like that you know and, yeah. and i thought what a cruel thing that, you know but the source that came from uh, I knew wouldn't have done something like that if if they hadn't heard it too, and so um, I had to call back to Chicago and, and confirm it from a couple other places. And um, you know, when things like, when tragedies like that happen, there's an emptiness that's never fully satisfied, right? And so um, it was a while before the service was held down in Little Rock, and at the time, as I mentioned, uh, I was living not far from Nashville. It's about an eight-hour drive, but I think at the most, it's it's well, maybe not that far. It's on the other side of Memphis, is what it is. And uh, I never go to funerals. I di- I didn't go to my own father's funeral. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, <clears throat> but uh, this was so bizarre, and it was so uh, unfathomable that uh, um, that I did go. Uh, many people don't know that I went because because um, I, I just said uh, my best to Barbie. You know, bless her soul. Uh, mm-hmm. and, um, and then, and then I left, you know, uh, I mean, maybe I'm weird, but, um, it was, it was a very difficult thing. And, um, the service did not have, uh, of course his body there. And so, uh, in a way I still feel like, okay, maybe this is all just some sick and twisted joke. And, you know, I'm going to get another one of those phone calls with, you know, with his energetic voice in my ear. But, um, <clears throat> Um, but yeah, you know, uh, I, I like how you know Dee mentioned that um, that while they may not be with us physically, um, you know, we are forever able to enjoy them through their music, and um, yeah. And it's so sad that his wife Bobby passed. I read three months after the funeral, she passed. Yeah, um, yeah, he, he, so not sad. long after that. Yeah. yeah. Well, she had been suffering on and off from, uh, I believe it was stomach cancer or something like that, and so um, it had been in remission. But um, as I know, with um, friends and relatives who've had cancer, you know, stress can re-trigger mm-hmm. those sorts of things, and I, mm-hmm. I can't imagine anything more stressful than, than losing him, uh, and particularly in this way, um, you know, with um, with two kids. Uh, it's it's too much. The whole thing is 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 just too much. And so, um, um, but I know that Art would want us to uh, to listen to his music, uh, not just from from an enjoyment standpoint, but also from a healing standpoint. Yeah. Because um, yeah. I know that's what he put he he put that in it. It was one of the ingredients that uh, that he wanted to make sure that audiences would connect to uh, is that kind of medicinal 
uh, quality that um, that all great music has, and um, and certainly it's it's true with everything that he did. Mm. Well, I appreciate and thank you so much for coming on and sharing your time and your stories about Art Porter. Um, My it's pleasure. been very thank, very thank enlightening. Thank you for doing this. You know, Terry, really, thank thank you, Mike. Thank you to. Um, uh, every day should be Art Porter Day, but um, but but this is as good as day as any. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. Well, thank you again, and um, I will be in touch um, with you about that other thing we talked about <laughs> and you other um, stuff bet. as well. So I'll be in touch with you, Cece, for sure. Um, it's a, been a pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much. My joy. Yep. Thank you. Have a good day, you guys. You Have too. a good day now. All right. Well, you can find all of Art's music on um, Amazon.com. So definitely, you know, if you've never seen him live, you just going to want to be introduced to his music. Just go to Amazon and check it out. Um, really nice, nice music. Um, gosh, I'm, I'm glad that I had opportunity to do this show to um, honor him. Um, I, we did a show a few years ago on George Howard. And um, I've always wanted to do one for art, and so I'm glad that I was able to do that today. On the 17th anniversary of his passing, we miss you, Art Porter, uh, but we love the music. All right, um, before we go, Mike, I just want to talk a little bit about Carol Ray. Um, Carol was the longtime manager of Nick Coleone, guitarist Nick Coleone, and she passed away um, this past week. And it's just been such a uh, a shock and um for me and a lot of other people, and I'm going to miss her dearly. I first met Carol in 2008. Um, Nick was the first smooth jazz artist we interviewed on the show, and she called into the show, and then um, she interviewed Mike and I about um, hosting the show and our interests, and then we interviewed her and Monica Hart, who is the manager for Russell Blake, um, and we called that show Managing Women, uh, women, um, just about their experience on managing artists and everything. And so it was a great, great time. I met her. The last time I saw Carol was at the Seabreeze Jazz Festival. Um, what, what was that? Oh nine, oh ten. Yeah, that was the last time I saw her, and um, I loved her to death. She was a sweet, sweet lady, and I just loved her to yeah. death. My heart goes out to her family, and especially to Nick Coleone. My yeah. condolences and heart, my just heartfelt sympathies goes out to to him and the family. Yeah, same thing here. You know, you know, just like you, Terry. You know, we met Carol through the show, and uh, I personally mm-hmm. first met her at Brooks Jazz Fest. Exactly. And, uh, you know, she was so personable and so you know just engaging. She would talk to anybody, and she would just you know talk to you about the business. It was no nothing about keeping secrets or. I'm going to not help you with your artist or something like that. Because even mm-hmm. when I started managing uh, Tony Exum, she gave me a call, and we talked about some different people to call and different things to do and different strategies to try to try to get him into the mainstream. And uh, she was just that, that that kind of person. She always looked out to help somebody else, you know, yes. and uh, she was just so nice. You know, she, she didn't mind you calling her. You know, uh, she, you know she, she would hit me up on the inbox on Facebook, and if I posted something crazy, you know, she would post something – on my page, or posting me on my inbox, <laughs> like you know, what was this about? Or what did what did that mean? You know, but mm-hmm. she was a very nice lady, and like said, uh, just like you know, you and everybody else, me, me myself included, I'm gonna miss her as well. You know, she was yeah. just a, a bright, bright, bright spot in this industry. You know, huh. yes, I, I agree. Definitely. 
<laughs> Dee, did you get a chance to meet her? Actually, I did not. Uh, okay. I had heard so much about her. Um, and, and, you know, it was all good. Uh, I tell you what, based on what I've heard, she is the <laughs> she's the epitome of uh, management, artist management. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. She sure is. Yeah. Sure yeah. is. I mean, because anybody that knows her, knows Nick, they've been together since, since Nick started out in the business. And as Trey said, when we interviewed Nick and we interviewed Carol, you know, she told us stories about how, you know, she would, you know, have Nick play certain times in Chicago, you know, purposely. You know, they didn't just do like, you know, some artists in some areas, they play every Friday, every Thursday, this bad. She purposely held Nick out and made Nick play every every so often to try to, you know, make the fans miss him and things like that. And, you know, and she told us that against Nick, Nick was like, yo, you know, my pocket's kind of hurting. But Carl was telling that, you know, it was basically a plan. You know, and, and the plan worked. You know what I'm saying? And, and Nick, right. you know, of course, now is a major smooth jazz artist, and he's a regular at most of the festivals in the United States now. And that's all due to Carl's, um, you know, wisdom and strategy and, and moving Nick in, in a certain manner. And, and definitely, you know, his career would be not the same if not for Carl Ray. So definitely Carl mm. was a very, very smart lady. Mm, definitely. One of the funniest um, um, stories or questions I asked Nick during the interview, as you know, Nick is sponsored by Stacey Adams, and so they so they give him clothes and shoes and and all of that. And I was I had read that Nick had had all these shoes, like hundreds and hundreds of pairs of shoes. And when I asked him that, he said he did. And Carol said, and some of them are at my house. I was like, that's a lot of shoes. <laughs> That's a lot of shoes. So we're going to miss you, Carol. Definitely we will miss you. And, again, our heartfelt um, sympathies and condolences go out to Nick Colleone and Carol Ray's family. All right, Mike, you have anything else to add? Uh, nothing else to add, sir. Next, next day um, I'm going to a concert tonight, which is uh, this is more of a local concert. Uh, Charm City Jazz is um, doing a concert in tribute to uh, Jazz Divas. So I'm going to go down there and support Roger Hurst and his movement. Okay. Um, that's about it. I just talked to David P. Stevens. Of course, he just came off the Capital Jazz Cruise, which ended last weekend. And I heard that was such a blast. And him, Jonathan, Princeton, um, a lot of the other guys, they were on that cruise together. Um, Pete Belasco, mm-hmm. Jeanette Harris. Uh, of course, Jeanette played here last night, and she's playing in uh, Virginia tonight. So, like I said, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a good look for the independent artists in uh, 2014, so I, I can't wait to next year. You know, of course, we're going to be planning for different artists and new artists to interview and things like that. So uh, okay. I'm just excited for these uh, guys and women. All right. All right. Well, have fun tonight. Dee, thank you again for calling in. I appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. And and my thanks good, again good to CC. Yeah, and my thanks again to Cece for calling in and sharing his um, stories. I'm going to close the show with a song from Art's debut CD, Pocket City. This is called Inside Myself. You've been listening to Talking Smooth Jazz with your host, the Jazz Queen. And Mike Reynolds. And we look forward to Talking Smooth Jazz with you again next time. Until then, keep it smooth.
thank you for listening to Talking Smooth Jazz. Please visit our websites, TalkingSmoothJazz.com and Mastermind-Entertainment.com. Join our Facebook fan and group pages and follow us on Twitter at Jazz underscore Queen and The Daily Drive. That's T-H-A Daily Drive.